Well, the dark night continues for uh, Jesus Christ. If you remember from last week, after uh, celebrating the Passover with his friends, they sing a song and they leave for the Mount of Olives where they uh, gather together and Jesus is praying. It's there that the guards of the temple and really the thugs, if you will, uh, seize Jesus Christ to take him to Caiaphas. This is the scene, the passage that Nick preached from last week ended with, and they all left him. They deserted him. He's, he's alone. And, um, <clears throat> and what we have following is a continuation of this dark night. And, and really, we can look at this night, uh, the balance of it, within uh, the context of two trials. This is what's happening, two trials. Jesus will face a trial before Caiaphas and Peter will also face a trial of sorts. In the trial with Jesus, we're going to see a faithfulness, a boldness, a strength that I think is, is attractive, actually. It, it, it leads us to desire him, to be overwhelmed with his grace and his magnificence. We can be instructed, we can be drawn to him, at the same time, this trial of Peter that's held in contrast, it's kind of a warning to us. We can be instructed by this as well, but we're instructed in other things. We're instructed in things like the tendency that we have to be overconfident in our spiritual strength or the deceitfulness of sin. We can be instructed in what makes for a right repentance and we can also be instructed in and encouraged in God not letting us fail. That he will save us, as he says, to the uttermost. Even though we falter and even though we fail at times, God will save us. He, he is a savior to us. So these are the two things. It's really like two sermons, if you will. There's the trial of Jesus we'll look at. And then we'll look at the trial of Peter. And they're intentionally in juxtaposition so that we see the two together. So we have two trials. Uh, the trial of Jesus, you see he's seized in the garden. He is taken to Caiaphas, the home of Caiaphas. He's the high priest. This is for a judicial, an ecclesial trial. Now, there present with Caiaphas were elders and scribes. This is called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, really kind of the ruling political body, over Jerusalem. In fact, Rome had delegated a measure of authority to the Sanhedrin to kind of act as the judicial arm over Judea. And so he is being brought to be tried before these religious leaders. But notice in 58, because in 58 he slides in, <clears throat> Matthew does, he slides in the point that Peter was at a distance behind him. Now, this is an insertion. Theologians call this a parenthesis. We're not, this is the story about Jesus right now, but he puts in a line about Peter so that our minds are thinking about Peter as we read about Jesus. Because we're going to come to Peter in verse 69 later. But he wants us thinking, Peter, but we're going to see the faithfulness of Jesus. So, so that's but we'll come to him later. So we, we have Jesus before Caiaphas. Now, this trial is in no way a legitimate trial. You know, the, the Mishnah, the writings of the Jews on the Hebrew Scriptures, gave clear 
uh, direction about how to have these ecclesial trials. Uh, they were not to be done at night. They were to be done during the day. This was done at night. This trial was in a personal residence. It was never to be done in a personal residence, but in a public venue like the courtyard. Uh, the trial was not to involve self-incriminating questions, such as you see here. The trial was never to render a judgment on the same day as the trial. In other words, the trial was to take place and then information reviewed and witnesses uh, interviewed and then a decision rendered. But they rendered a decision on the same day as the trial. Not only that, but they condemned him to death on a festival day, the Passover. That was never to take place. The, the festivals were days of celebration. They weren't days to render a judgment of death upon any person. So, so they really broke many, many rules. And I think you can see really how dedicated they were to have Jesus put to death. And they wanted him dead. Having it at night, away from the crowd. How was everybody there present in Caiaphas's house? Probably, this was probably around 1 o'clock in the morning. And the trial would go through the night. How they arranged all the false witnesses. I mean, you can see they were baking this thing up. It was a kangaroo court. Their intentions were <clears throat> absolutely ungodly. They were evil. Now, we know that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all these different players, they were very intimidated by Jesus. They hated him. I mean, he threatened them. He exposed their hypocrisy. He challenged their authority. You remember this all the way back from chapter 21 of Matthew. You know, when, when, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the people were shouting, Hosanna, son of David. And they were looking, him, looking at him as the coming king in chapter 22. Do you remember they sent spies, they sent all these legal experts and these, these brilliant theologians to try to trap Jesus and trip him up? but they weren't able to. They were trying to undermine his popularity with the people. They were trying to undermine his authority. They saw Jesus as a rising star, and they wanted to cut him off at the knees, but they couldn't do it. In chapter 23, Jesus condemns the Pharisees as failed shepherds. He exposes them as worthless in leading the people. Why? Because they didn't identify him as the Messiah, and so he condemns them. Chapter 24 and 25, Jesus is speaking about the kingdom of God that's coming with him in power. That Jerusalem will be destroyed, the temple will be destroyed. So they won him dead. That's the short and skinny of it. Their intentions were ungodly, <clears throat> they were immoral, and their methodology was unlawful. Even raising up false witnesses is a clear violation of the ninth commandment. They won him dead, and they finally have him. They got him in their grasp. It's night, and they have a plan. They can't even find a false witness, though. Do you see that? Only two came up and spoke about Jesus saying the temple would be torn down, and then eventually he built it up in three days. That was a, a poor interpretation of John 2, chapter 2, where Jesus speaks about himself as a temple. But what do you see here? You see Jesus just being silent. Just silent. He doesn't say anything. I mean... I don't know of a more dramatic event if you're on trial for your life and you're actually put in the dock, you're put in the witness stand, and you don't say anything. He didn't say a word. Well, the high priest won't stand for this. 
And so in frustration and anger, he commands Jesus. He says, by the living God, tell us if you're the Christ, the Son of God. Now, Jesus has been reticent throughout the whole ministry to declare himself as the Messiah. And so he says to this high priest, it is as you say. Now, sometimes that seems ambiguous to me. I wish, wish he'd say it differently. But if we were there at the time, we would have heard it like this. It is so out of your own mouth, or it is so from your own lips. In other words, Jesus is agreeing with the fact that he is the Messiah, the Son of God. But he takes issue with the high priest's understanding of what that means. See, to the Jew at the time, the Messiah was going to be a human ruler. It had political, geopolitical, nationalistic overtones, a kingdom that was a kingdom that you could see with armies and men and land. But there was so much more that Jesus was speaking about being the Messiah. Jesus is going to bend out of proportion what this man understands to be the Messiah. And that's why he says this, but I tell you that you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God and coming on the clouds of heaven. What he's saying here, what he's doing here is incredible. He is taking the opportunity to identify himself fully and completely. And he conflates two passages, this passage from Psalm 110, and this passage from Daniel 7, 13, and 14. And he brings together two passages and two pictures to reveal who he is. And the first one is from Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This was a passage declaring the Messiah to be divine, to be the divine ruler, the divine judge, having all power, all authority. And he brings that together with this passage from Daniel 7. Everyone in the room would have known. He was quoting Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And in that passage, it says, One like a son of man appears to the ancient of days. And here's what he says. Behold, with clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, that is the Son of Man, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's saying, I'm the Messiah, but I am divine, ruling, creator, judge with a kingdom forever. He's establishing himself. He says, I may be standing before you in judgment now, but I will be the judge of all things, of all peoples. And he says, you will see me. Can you imagine? I mean, you want Jesus to finally bust it out and to finally tell us who he is? He just did it. He did it in in an incredible way. And you can see the explosive reaction. The high priest tears his garments, which was a sign of just absolute terror, disgrace, blasphemy. He's overwhelmed. He brings a charge of blasphemy against Jesus. And then he calls for a verdict among those on the council. They all render the same verdict, guilty, deserving of death. And then literally, I mean, upon the Son of God, all hell breaks loose. They beat him, they smack him, they spit in his face. They mock him, saying, tell us who just struck you. 
I mean, can you, this is the Son of God who has just declared himself to be the one who approaches the Ancient of Days to receive an eternal kingdom forever. The tragic scene is furthered in that these religious leaders did not know they were actually fulfilling the role as the the enemy of the Messiah. You know, back in Isaiah 50, one of the servant songs, one of the songs in Isaiah that he spoke about a Messiah to come. Here's what we read. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and I know I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. I mean, can you imagine the scene? That was the trial of Jesus. 27, 1 and 2 speak about the morning, the sun rising, and Jesus being taken to Pilate. But let me just stop here for a minute. Because this is a very dark, dark, heavy scene. Is there any light that we have from this scene? Uh, what do you do with this? What is the Christian today? Or what is the non-Christian? How do we proceed or perceive this? Let me give you a few things to think about before we move to Peter's trial. Number one, I want you to see that Jesus shows us he's willing to die. He's willing to die. He doesn't say anything. He's silent. Not only is he silent, he doesn't make a defense. His life is blameless. But he says nothing. Now, it's not as if he couldn't have said something. I mean, we've seen Jesus read chapter 22 in Matthew. They send these different scholars and theologians and experts in the law to Jesus, and they keep trying to trip him up. And you know what it says? The very last verse in Matthew 22, we read this. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. He could have gotten himself out. Nobody could compete with his intellect, his logic, his knowledge of scriptures, but he remained silent. Why? He remained silent because he was showing us his willingness to die. He was willing to follow the plan of God, to submit himself. He knew that the Jews would reject him. John chapter 1. He came to his own and yet they did not receive him. And that it was through the rejection of the Jewish people that the gospel would go to all the nations. Jesus bit his tongue to submit to the Father to carry out the plan of redemption for the world. We've already seen this precious submission by Jesus in the garden hours before when he said, not not my will be done, but your will be done. What graciousness to carry forth the plan. I mean, do you ever think about that? That nobody killed Jesus or took his life. He laid it down. He submitted himself. He laid down his right to defend himself, to take up our sins and to bear our shame and our guilt, that we might be among the redeemed, that we might be in the company of saints, that we might be forever enjoying God. He willingly lays down his life for us. Again, fulfilling yet another servant song in Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet he opened not 
his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Just rejoice over that with me, that he would be silent for us. But there's something else I think Jesus shows us in this passage. He shows us the profound irony that suffering precedes glory. It's an irony, it really is. It's counterintuitive to us. I mean, the ironies are breathtaking. Here, they are judging the judge of the world, right? They are seated, holding him in contempt, where he will be seated, holding them in contempt. They condemn him to die, who at that time is sustaining their life, and who holds life and death. They condemn him of blaspheming, where they are blaspheming themselves. They hold themselves to be priests and kings ruling over Israel before the true priest and the true king. I mean, the ironies are overwhelming, but Jesus knows that the Son of Man must suffer before he is to enter his glory. This is very important for us because we, like the Master, will suffer. And we will endure hardships and difficulties at some corner of life. And we have to remember to not be confused, to not be wandering, to not be overwhelmed, but that this is the way that suffering precedes glory. That it it always comes first. Paul says that I don't even consider the sufferings of the present age to be compared with the glories to be revealed. Or Peter, do you think Peter, remember he's in our mind because he was inserted into this story? You know what Peter would write later in his life? He would say these words. Beloved, don't be surprised at the trial when it comes upon you to test you as if something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. It's the same thing. So we don't want to be overwhelmed. We want to recognize. And let's do that now before we enter that time of testing and trial. But then there's a third thing I think that Jesus shows us that can be very instructive from this trial. And that is the absolute wickedness of men. I mean, think about this with me. It, it, someone will say, well, this warns us about following leaders and your leaders are not infallible. All true, all true. I think there's much more going on here. I, I want you to realize that the wickedness, now, these are clerics, these are leaders, these are men who are trying to be godly. And look at what they do to the Messiah. They boil down to spitting and slapping and mocking. You know, religious fervor, apart from faith in a humiliated son of God, is a dangerous thing. You see that in Islam. You've seen that against the church by religious people. Religious people can be often the most wicked, and they don't know it. They don't know it. C.S. Lewis writes this, in mere Christianity, he says, if anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity as the supreme vice, he is quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport, backbiting, the pleasures of power, of hatred. This is why a cold, self-righteous prig who regularly goes to church may be far nearer to hell 
than a prostitute. Martin Luther says this, there is no sinner so great as the Christian church. Are you aware of that, that we have the capacity? Can you believe about yourself that you can be so wicked? I hate this, you know, in this day of light and frivolous and make everybody happy and satisfied, I'm up here telling you something that is biblically true, that every one of us could be far more wicked than we can even imagine. What would you have done if you were here? What would you have done if you were on that council? Would you have stood up and, and called out this kangaroo court? Would, would, you have, would you have stood up and silenced everybody? Or would you have gone quiet? Would you have gone along with the crowds? And many of us think, well, I wouldn't have done, I wouldn't have done this. So, really? What do you do now with the claims of Christ? Think the claims are still relevant now. Jesus has claimed to be the sovereign son of God, ruler, judge, creator, sustainer of all things. Sitting at the right hand will come back on the clouds of glory. And those clouds of glory, by the way, it's not like coming back like a surfer riding a board. He's not riding the clouds. The clouds have to do with the Old Testament reference to that Shekinah glory, the presence of God. He will come back with the full power and glory of God himself. What do you say to this? Do you dismiss these claims of his? I mean, do they fright you? Do they anger you? Many people get angry over this language. This is the struggle with Christianity. Christianity is really about, is about declaring that you're not king, that you're not sovereign over your life, that you're called to follow a king. You're called to submit, but we don't want to submit. We don't want to submit to anybody. We want to be sovereign over our life. This is why Christianity rubs people raw, because it calls for you to recognize, I am broken in need of a savior outside of myself i can't dig deep enough to find it within me to change i need a savior to come and deliver me how do you respond to this well the response is one of mercy it's it's just grace and repentance if you're not a christian here and and you have come and, and you are dealing even right now with this claim of Jesus to be king and Lord over all, and that you will see him again, as we all will, that we are to repent of our sins. We're to acknowledge that we have failed, that we are broken, that we can be far more wicked than we can even imagine, and that we repent of the things we've done we haven't done, and we place our faith in the one who has laid down his right to defend himself and taken up our sins. We place our faith in the one who has died to reconcile us to a holy God, that we can be with him forever. That's the gospel. Now the camera kind of shifts, if you will, to Peter. Look with Peter, if you will, picking up in 79. You know, again, they are held together for our instruction. They're held together. So you see Peter there, he's sitting. He's sitting at this fire, according to Luke's gospel. And um, he's in the courtyard. So the courtyard is next to the residence of Caiaphas where the trial is taking place. And he's sitting there. And, and let's give Peter some degree of credit. You know, he, he did follow. He, he did make some bold. Remember how Jesus said back in 31, he says, this night all of you will leave me. And Peter says, they may leave you. 
Can't you imagine that? You know when that sense of self-righteousness just wells up in you and your chest kind of pops a little and you can just hear Peter, well, they may deny you. I'll never deny you. In fact, I'll even die for you, but I'll never deny you. That's what he said. And then bold, brash Peter takes up the sword in the garden as if he's going to defend his Lord, right? So now he's sitting in the garden. He's sitting in the courtyard, right? And, and a young girl, a servant girl, right? A, a girl in that society of no significance comes up and says, you were with the Galilean. And notice what Peter says. He goes, I don't even know what you're saying. I don't, I don't understand what you're saying. He, he's lying. You know when we do that, which we all do, right? He knows what she's asking. He's evading, manipulating. Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. He can't bring himself. It's the first step down a path that he's taken. Then another servant girl comes up to him. But do you notice where he is now? He changes location. He's now by the gate. He's starting to, you know, he's starting to do that exit. And she comes up and says, yeah, you're with the Galilean. And then he, he amplifies his denial. You notice in the text it says, with an oath, he says, I don't know the man. So he can't even bring himself to mention Jesus' name. But now he takes an oath. It's like, it's like I swear to God that I don't know this. You know, we're going we're gonna to baptize my falsehood with the sacred, is what we do. We're going to amp it. As soon as someone does that to me, I'm like, I don't believe him. If they've got to bring the divine, Jesus said in Sermon on the Mount, make your yes, yes, make your no, no. Don't need to pull the divine name in. Just speak the truth. But he swore to try to amplify it. But then what happens? The bystanders. So now, now it's starting to grow a little bit, and the bystanders now come up and say, yeah, surely you're a Galilean. We can hear your voice. To speak like a Galilean would have a bit of a country-fied accent, if you will. And, and so they say, yeah, you were with them. And that's when he invokes a curse and says, I don't know the man. He invokes a curse. In other words, he's saying, God, strike me dead if I'm not telling the truth. He's bringing down judgment upon himself. Again, to try to garner some support for what he's saying as true. Okay, when he does this, then of course the rooster crows. And then he remembers. Now think about it. What does he remember? Well, he surely remembers that Jesus said, you all will leave me. And I'm sure that he remembers. He said, I'll never deny you. But you know what I bet? I think he probably also remembers in the garden when Jesus says the spirit's willing but the flesh is weak. He says watch and pray so that you don't fall into temptation. How many times does Jesus wake him? Three. How many times does Jesus deny? Three. Can't you imagine how that would have hit him? But then I also think he probably remembered just the kindness of Jesus. He probably remembered just how truthful he was. How, how gentle he was. How, how, how powerful he was. Can't you imagine? You know how you have those moments when a hundred memories flood your mind. And he ran out and whipped, wept bitterly. And we don't know where he ran. It doesn't tell us. It doesn't matter. He went out and wept deeply. So, so how does the modern church, how do we as a church profit from this? I think we all can, as, 
as David prayed, I think we can all identify times that we have denied God. Maybe not in this exact context, but, but let's not be literal there. Let's remember that our denials can come by being silent when maybe we should have stood up or said something. You know how that feeling comes. You're in a situation, you're in a conversation, you're at work or you're in the community, and someone makes a joke or they say something, and you're like, you're quickly figuring out, should I say something, should I not, should I walk away, should I laugh, maybe I shouldn't laugh, what should I do in this situation? But your, your main concern is, how do I try to honor but save my rear end? We, we want to do both at the same time. We don't want to lose our identity. We don't want to lose face with other people. But we love Jesus, and we want to do it. You know that feeling. That's what he was feeling. So what do we do? How do we profit from this? Well, well, the the first thing I, I think we can take away is, let's not be overconfident. Let's watch the overconfidence of our spiritual strength. Let's be aware. I mean, take Peter, for example. He had been warned repeatedly by Jesus. In fact, in Luke's gospel, do you know that Jesus actually said to him, Satan seeks to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you. So he had the heads up. Satan is coming at you like a torpedo. You better be aware. But, you know, Peter still went to sleep after that warning. He was confident. He was confident in his ability to stay strong. But we've got to explain, how did he fall apart like a house of cards? I mean, two girls came up. I mean, he, he wasn't threatened with punishment. He wasn't threatened with jail time. There wasn't the, the burning spotlight and the interrogating questions. There was no torture going on. Two servant girls asked him, hey, weren't you with the Nazarene? That's all. And he crumbles. Why? He was over. He overemphasized or over realized the strength that he had. He was weak and he didn't know it. Now, you know this is true in our lives. I and mean, we see it in our kids, right? We see it kind of just unvarnished. You know, they've been driving for two months and they take the car out. And they're going to see a friend and it's starting to drizzle. And you just, as they walk out the door, you say, hey, just be careful, it's raining. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. So you've been driving for two months. What do you know? My kids would do that. I don't have idiot written here. You haven't been driving the car. You know, it, it's, they don't, but it just comes out. Or, or it, I had one counsel, counseling time. You don't know them, so don't try to figure out who it is. But it was a premarital counseling. And I, I was talking to them about the conflict uh, within marriage that can take place over money, over sexuality, over poor communication, over self-centeredness. And every time I'd bring it up, they'd say, I know. We know that. Well, we know that too. And we know that. And at the end, I was like, so how long have you guys been married? <laughs> you haven't been. That's right. Okay. It's, it's like, and maybe I've shared this before, it's like the guy learning how to sail in a classroom. Yeah, I know how to sail. Have you ever been on a boat? Have you ever been in the sea with the spray, the boat healing, the, the sheets tight? No, but I've learned how to sail in a class. We overestimate our spiritual strength and vitality. And it sets us up to fall, to fall to temptation. J.C. Rowley, a great Anglican preacher in England in the 19th century, says, We are weak, and the best of saints are only men, and men encompassed by many infirmities. A man may be converted to God, have faith, hope, and love, and yet have weak areas, blind spots, vulnerabilities. This is Martin Luther says, There but for the grace of God go I. 
John Calvin on this passage said, Peter's fall is a bright mirror of our weakness. Be mindful of that. I think Nick gave great applications last week in terms of, are we praying? You know, the purpose of memorizing Scripture is so that we can fight temptation. The Scripture is like a sword. Do we pray? Do we watch? Do we know Scripture? Otherwise, we will fall. We will fall. Have to know your weakness. But then another truth that we take out of Peter's faltering in faith here is while we tend to overestimate our ability to walk by faith, we underestimate the deceitfulness of sin. We we, we don't think it's as insidious as it is. We don't realize that it works from the core out. You know, Ryle also says that man will always sin privately before he sins publicly. He'll always sin privately before. It works its way out. You kind of see it in this declension of how he falls in uh, the temptations, right? First he evades. Next he takes an oath oath and lies. Now third he invokes a curse and lies on top of that. It, It kind of spirals down. Sin is not satisfied with half a death. It wants a whole death and it will go after you. You know, one time the kids were at the house, this is years ago, and uh, they were leaving, um, forget the details, but we all walk outside, and we see that this maple tree in the front yard had fallen over. And it had been raining and storming, we didn't hear it, and it looked like a fine tree, it was a pretty tree, we left it, it everything was great about it, and I went out the next morning, it almost crushed the neighbor's car. I was thankful that it didn't. But I, I saw that it was rotten from the inside. You did not see that from the outside. But, but from the inside, the work was being done. So that it became vulnerable and it fell. So let's not overestimate ourselves. Let's not underestimate the power and the deceitfulness of sin. I want you to think of it like a whirlpool. The closer you get to it, the harder it is to get out of it. You don't want to get near the middle of that thing. The third thing I would ask you to consider in regard to Peter is we see that it's godly sorrow that leads to repentance. We're going to see next week Judas. Judas was sad too, but Peter was sorrowful. Notice what it says, he wept bitterly. This isn't misty eyes. This isn't, you know, I feel bad that somebody got hurt. I got emotional. This wasn't, you know, we got older and we get a little more tender in our feelings. He wept bitterly. That word means audibly. He was wailing. Why? Well, again, we find a detail in Luke that we don't have in Matthew. And let me read it for you. Let me read that third temptation and failure. He says this. Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. This is the third denial he makes. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So there was a scene. He's in the courtyard. Jesus is in the palace, not with walls like we may understand, but Jesus turns and looks at him. Then it says, he remembered and went out and whipped bitterly. He saw Jesus. He looked at him. It was the face of Jesus. 
that brought him. See, sin, we don't repent of sin because it's sin. We may feel bad over sin that somebody got hurt. We may feel bad over sin that, look, we can't seem to stop doing what we're doing. We may feel bad over sin because it makes us look foolish again. But repentance is when we recognize that sin is against God. And he saw that when Jesus looked at him. Can you imagine the look? I don't think it would have been that furrowed brow or that indignation that we may have with someone in our family that fails again. I, I think it was a compassionate look because Jesus knew he was going to fall. And it was, a, it was a compassionate, pleading look for him. But that's what led him to repentance. This is a very big difference here. That our repentance, for it to be genuine, we need to understand that we've sinned against God. And that's what brings sorrowful repentance. And sorrowful repentance leads to life, and it leads to joy, and it leads to restoration. Folks, repentance is the greatest, one of the greatest gifts God's given to us. Because we can clear the decks and we can find him to be satisfying. And he accepts us and loves us. You know, it's interesting, if you were to go to John 21, after uh, the resurrection, Peter and the apostles are in the boat, they're fishing, Jesus comes to the shoreline, and calls out to them, and John the Apostle says to Peter, it's the Lord. Now they hadn't, and you know what it says? Peter, he don't want to wait for the boat to get in. He jumps into the water, and he swims to the shore. He so quickly wants to get to the one he denied. And that's when Jesus says to him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times he restores him. It's a beautiful picture of restoration, forgiveness, mercy through repentance. Never remembering sins anymore. That's the promise that we have. Full restoration. God not remembering our denials anymore. Listen to what Spurgeon says about God's capacity to forgive. He says this, His pardon is so true and deep that it amounts to an absolute oblivion, a total forgetting of all the wrongdoing of the pardoned ones. The great Father's heart is not brooding over the injuries we've done. His infinite mind is not revolving within itself the tale of our iniquities. No. If we have fled to Christ for refuge, the Lord remembers our sin no more. The record of our iniquity is taken away, and the judge has no judicial memory of it. Can we rejoice over that? That true sorrow leads to godly repentance, which leads to restoration, forgiveness, and joy. Folks, if you have been carrying just a litany of things that you have done wrong, that you don't think he can forgive you, he has no judicial memory if you have sought Christ for refuge. Now, for those without Christ, this is, the, this is the time, this is the day of salvation for you to turn and believe and repent and turn to him for forgiveness. One other thing I want to point out to you in this passage, in Peter's trial, is God's capacity to redeem and restore. Look at Peter again, just briefly with me. He was restored. He became, of course, the leader of the church. Now, this story is recorded in all four Gospels because I think it has such an important message to tell that though our failure be horrid, his capacity to restore you is greater than your ability to fail. I mean, Peter would go on, and I forget if, if Nick mentioned this last week, but about Peter's end was crucifixion. 
Eusebius, one of the earliest church historians, records by tradition that he was crucified. And he was crucified upside down because he did not want to mirror the crucifixion of his king. He went from failure to faithful. In fact, he wrote the letter, the first letter. It's called First Peter. We're going to study it in 2017. And it's really an instruction manual on how to be faithful under persecution and trial. It comes out of his experience. God took this failure and he turned him into a giant of the faith. As, as an example for us, that he can restore our failure. I was talking to Rachel about the text, and she just blurted out, I love Peter. He's in there for us. He is. He's a, he's a testimony to God's capacity to redeem and restore and rebuild us. Folks, that's for you. It's a message for you. Jesus knew he had to save Peter. Not save Peter in a justifying sense through forgiveness of sins. He had to keep saving Peter as he has to keep saving us. And this is the promise we have in Scripture. In Hebrews chapter 7 we read, Consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you hear that? He is able to save you to the uttermost. Your need for Christ was not at the point of conversion. It is now as well. It's why we preach the gospel to ourselves every day. But for those of you who feel like a failure, or you feel like, gee, I'll never measure up, or look at this history of failure, would you put that to the side by faith and believe what I've just read? He's able to save you to the uttermost. We can rejoice with him over this. So we see two trials. It's really a tale of two trials. It's the trial of Jesus. And we see the truth and the light that we can see in the darkness of that trial. And then we see Peter. So much instruction for us. So let's just take a minute now. And perhaps you want to you speak to God about the nature of your sin and repent to him. Perhaps it's to thank him for his encouragement to you through his word. Or perhaps it's, it's to make a, a resolution to God that you want to make a change. But let's take a few minutes and silently confess these things, speak to him about these things, and then um, an elder will come and close in prayer in just a minute. Thank you.